Good morning and welcome to the Coffee and Cap Rates podcast, your go-to source for New York City's latest commercial real estate insights. This program is brought to you by Ariel Property Advisors. Hi, everyone. I'm Shimon Shkuri with Coffee and Cap Rates, the podcast from Ariel Property Advisors. And today we have a special guest with us, Chris Balestra, the president and chief investment officer for Taconic Partners. Chris, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. My first podcast, very excited. That's great. And it's not our first, but I'm hopeful we'll make it enjoyable for you. And look, Taconic is doing a tremendous amount of work here in New York City in different product types throughout the city, which I think is fascinating. And I want to start with what you guys are seeing in the office market and ask specifically about life sciences. I know that you had some ideas and thoughts about it in the past and you started looking at it recently, past few years actually. So why don't you tell us about the genesis of that endeavor and how it came about? Sure, so our entry into the sector was about five or six years ago. And at the time, I don't think we would have considered ourselves life science experts by any means. We bought a building on 54th Street back in 2012. It was a good basis play at the time, 325,000 square feet, just sort of like a cheaper alternative to Midtown. And so about five Mm -hmm. or six years ago, my tenant was in the market for space to create a lab. And they came to us and said, we've kind of scoured the market and there aren't a lot of buildings that are capable of housing our needs, but we think you're one of a few. And we'd like to do a deal. We said, great. We don't know much about lab space, but we find it interesting. And what we found was that, you know, the biggest component of creating lab is really the infrastructure that goes into it. You've got more power. You've got backup power. You've got air changes that are eight to 10 times what you had in a traditional office building. You have exhaust for fume hoods and specialized equipment. But it all really comes down to infrastructure, and and we have a a long background in the telecom industry. So we were familiar with sort of mission-critical type tenants and their needs and all the things that go along with that. So we did a little bit more of a traditional office deal at the time, a cheaper rent with a TI package, and the tenant along with us designed and built the space. And that's the New York Stem Cell Foundation. They're our first life science center, and they're still there, and they've expanded at the Hudson Research Center. Along the same time, New York City and state were trying to figure out a way to incentivize the development of additional lab space. So we cozied up with them and learned what we could and ultimately found enough conviction to say, let's pre-build a floor. We had marketed some space as potential lab space, but really these tenants, they want to know that it's there. They want to know that it's real, that it's built and it's very expensive to do so. So we put a big bet on the table. And during design of that space, the bet paid off and we leased the space before we even started construction. So that's sort of the, how we got started. That's awesome. So you bought a building 11 years ago, thinking it's going to be a usual office building, but it bought it at a lower basis. And then you actually have the opportunity five to six years later to convert it to something that's a lot more meaningful in terms of rent. But at the same time, you had to put a ton of money into it. If you don't mind me asking, I mean, how much does it cost to convert on a price per foot a regular office building into a life sciences office building? What would the conversion cost be from a TI perspective? 
Yeah, so to turnkey lab space with a 50-50 lab and office component, that in and of itself is about $325 a square foot, three to 325. But the wow. infrastructure upgrade on top of that, and that's just for the space within the four walls of the lab and office. On top of that, we had to add about additional $250 a square foot to put in the supplemental systems that were needed. Now, ideally you're doing a whole building at a time or building a brand new building. In this case, we started off a little bit piecemeal to get our feet wet. So that first unit that we built along with the Sunsell Foundation was sort of autonomous. Their systems are kind of ingrained into their space rather than what we did later on, which was put 25 or $30 million of equipment on the roof in order to feed another 100 plus thousand square feet of lab. So today that building, it's all either medical office or wet lab space. So it's a very interesting asset, but going floor by floor is not the ideal way to do it, but that's how we got comfortable with it initially. That's incredible. Again, that's a great story of how to turn something just okay into something great. And in terms of neighborhoods, what neighborhood do you see as conducive to that or attractive to life sciences buildings? Yeah, so New York is a little unique compared to other cities like Cambridge or San Francisco, where you have these clusters that have really kind of grown out of a center. Obviously, Manhattan being the way that it is, which is pretty fully built, that's a little less possible. There's clearly an east side cluster kind of down on the south towards NYU and then back up north through the 60s and and up to Mount Sinai and beyond. And then the west side is where we have about 700,000 square feet of lab space in various stage right now. And that cluster seems to be developing. There are a couple other buildings with lab components, as well as Mount Sinai West and some other institutions over there. There's a little bit down in the Hudson Square neighborhood. You've got a couple little pockets, but the biggest are really sort of on the east side and and now what we've been creating on the west side. Long Island is its own cluster into itself. I don't want to forget about that. It's a little bit different and not quite what we're doing, but it's certainly an option. Right. You have also Long Island City uh, contingency there. We represented at the time the Tasty building that looked for equity, and we helped with that. That's on 126th Street all the way by the new expansion of Columbia. So, again, these are exciting stories about life sciences. And in terms of, again, we, we touched on it. I think you also built a ground-up one, right? If Not just conversions. If I'm not mistaken, two conversions and one ground-up or something like that? So we have four assets right now in various stages. The Hudson Research Center, which I already talked about, that was clearly a conversion with tenants in place. Not ideal, but it worked. And when we think about these conversions or ground up and where it can happen, there are also some components to that that are necessary. Zoning, for one, in New York City, you have to have the right zoning that works. If you're going to do a conversion, you need significant floor loads, not just a typical office floor. You need ceiling heights, ideally in the 13 to 15 foot range. You can make do with a little less, but again, not ideal. And hopefully a building that's vacant or or mostly vacant. And additionally, loading, the loading regulations for life sciences uh, more robust than a typical office building. Anyway, so we have two buildings on the west side, the Hudson Research Center. We just opened West End Labs, which is at 65th Street and West End Avenue. That building is 400,000 square feet. It was originally built by Chrysler as an auto service center and showroom back in the 30s, I believe. So it was built with significant infrastructure. If you're going to store cars in a building, you need to have significant floor loads, and they built it with great ceiling heights. I mean, I think today 
it's probably over designed for what you might have needed, but it was perfect when we saw it. It's about 10 blocks north of our Hudson Research Center. It was kind of like the perfect skeleton to work with. So in 2019, we acquired that. Uh, Disney had been using it. They vacated a little while later and we closed into development in 2021. We just delivered the base building infrastructure, core and shell, as well as a full floor pre-built lab. And our first tenant moved in basically the day we had our TCO and we've got a great reception so far and a lot of potential leasing action there. Our third property is on the east side in the 90s. That will be partially ground up and partially overbuilt. The, there was one building on the site that was, I don't know what the original use was, but it, again, significant ceiling heights, significant floor loads, and the adjacent buildings were just sort of like one-story garages. So we've knocked those down and we're going to stitch it together. You won't know the difference. It'll look like a, a brand new building. The fourth asset is a little bit of a pipeline. We were designated developer of a site on the east side, right by NYU, right across the street from the Spark, going to be going through a ULERP, and that'll be a 550,000 square foot brand new ground up facility. That's great. So you have the whole gamut. And, and uh, I think the last question before we move on to another product type is just about tenancy. I mean, the, how deep is the tenant pool for life sciences? I have an idea of how you target them, but just what kind of tenants and how deep the pool is? Yeah, the New York market is different a little bit from some of the other cities. First of all, it only has about 2 million square feet of active lab space today compared to Boston at, I think, 45 million or 40 million and, and San Francisco with even more and San Diego, et cetera. So if you look at the market as a whole, it's, it's very small, which if you think about New York, doesn't make a ton of sense, except that there's always been some other higher and better value for land like condos or traditional office buildings. The market is very small, but New York is now the number one funded NIH research city in the country. So the research is happening here. And up until now, and what we're trying to fix is that when those ideas happen, they were forced to go to other cities because there simply just isn't any space here. The vacancy rate for actually built and occupiable lab space is practically zero in New York City. So if, if you see a 0% vacancy market for any asset class, I think that tells you something that there's an opportunity to create more space and demand must be there somewhere. But it's really two segments of the market at the moment. There's the early stage pre-revenue, mostly venture-backed companies coming out of incubators or coming out of the research institutions. And they're the 10 to 30,000 square foot types of users. They've got a funding round. They need to start the research immediately. And they're looking for built space that they can move in to tomorrow. Real estate was almost the afterthought after getting the money. And now, they, oh, crap, we have to actually find a place to do this. So we're seeing great demand from those types of tenants when they emerge and they see what we have. It makes a lot of sense. And then the other end of the spectrum is our research institutions, you know, the hospital systems where kind of all that original research is happening and where the NIH funding is going to. Unlike other cities, like Cambridge was able to sprawl, MIT can build buildings all over the place. Our research institutions don't have a ton of land or any land in some instances on their own campus. So they've now getting more and more money. They need to expand and they've actually become probably the biggest commercial life science users in the city because they have nowhere else to go on their own campus. Where you're seeing 
cities like Boston expand rapidly, where it really came from is when those early stage companies, when their ideas really come to fruition and they grow dramatically and they need 100,000 feet or 200,000 feet. That hasn't happened yet in New York, but we're hoping to start seeing that. And then that'll really be a catalyst for additional demand. That's very interesting what you're saying. You're basically saying, look, on the early stage stuff, I mean, we're probably taking a little bit more risk because they're smaller companies, 10 to 30,000 square feet. But if they blow up, if they do really well, we'll do well with them because they can take more space over time. I mean, I think that's super interesting. And then you have the bigger research institutions that, of course, everybody wants because they're the stable, so to speak, tenants. I think that's also interesting for the office market. I mean, this life sciences category specifically, almost a user category on its own that's still doing well here in the city and the office market, as we all know, struggles in some cases. It's a great bright spot for it. Let's shift from life sciences or office to multifamily. And, you know, I can tell you that we know that multifamily is doing pretty well when it comes to free market doesn't do as well when it comes to rent stabilized, mostly because of regulation, but also because of interest rates. And it does well when it comes to affordable housing. So these are the three dimensional things that we see. You guys are doing several projects in the multifamily world you've owned before. But tell us, first of all, like big picture, what type of multifamily projects are you developing now? Sure. So anytime that we can do a predominantly market rate luxury type building in Manhattan, which is not easy to do to find the land to actually get it done. We kind of jump at that opportunity. We currently have a little over 300 units under development right now on uh, 43rd Street, just west of 8th Avenue. And that will deliver next year. So that's been in our pipeline for the last four or five years, kind of getting through pre-development and development. It's not far from a building we built with about 400 units on 52nd Street. So we like that Hell's Kitchen West Side neighborhood, both for life science and multifamily. We have 700 units under development in Inwood. That's a little bit more of a mixed income project. It's about 50% regulated affordable and about 50% market rate. And within that market rate for that area, it's probably not that much more than you know the higher end of the affordable units. In addition, we're partners in truly affordable housing, uh, very low income developments in Coney Island, a land that Taconic acquired close to 20 years ago. All told, probably over 2,000 units under development right now. Yep, it's interesting because we know your side on 42nd. We actually financed the adjacent SIP, helps finance the adjacent side. And is it a 2575 affordable New York? I believe it's 7525. Yeah, affordable New York. That's amazing. And so, just an anecdotal question you couldn't build rental, you couldn't make it sense of it if you didn't have the tax abatement action as a rental. Generally, no. I mean, if you had a zero land basis, maybe, but I don't think anybody's selling you land in New York City for zero. So uh, that's why I don't think you're going to see a lot of new projects starting, given that 421A or Affordable New York is no longer. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more about the one that you did. You also did Essex Crossing with BFC and LM on the Lower East Side. That was a big mixed-use project that included everything, like retail, condos, and affordable housing. Tell us a little bit more about it. Tell us what you liked about it to the extent that you can speak to it. It's a very big project. It was an RFP from the city. You guys won it. So that was, uh, what, five, seven, eight years ago? Yeah, I think we're going back 10 at this point for the first phase. There you go. So very interesting project. Nine sites on the Lower East Side. I think it was the biggest 
piece of city-owned land south of Hudson Yards that they put into development. We've got a mix of retail, residential, condos. The residential is 50% affordable. We've got some bigger box retailers. There's really a little bit of everything, market space, the relocation of the XX Street market, our own market. And it was really kind of the definition of a public-private partnership. The city under Bloomberg went through the brain damage of rezoning those sites and also working with the community in order to create the RFP of what they wanted. And, and of course, there was variations of what could be done, you know, left up to the developer and the RFP, but they did a, a really great job of kind of creating the box with which we could work from. That's great. You're mentioning a few things here that I think are super important. So you're developing rentals on 42nd, you do use a tax abatement. And if you want to develop rentals, you have to have some kind of a tax break to make financial sense of it. You're developing uptown and that's really affordable housing. Again, I'm assuming with a tax abatement and other possible subsidies that allow you to do that. And you've developed the Essex Crossing, which has been a public-private partnership. So you do need the city to help develop and provide the right incentives so developers actually have the economic ability to develop in the city. So I think that's a critical point in development. At the end of the day, you want to make sure that you make money for your investors. Otherwise, they'll go somewhere else and not to New York City. So I just wanted to mention that and see if that makes sense to you as a developer. Yeah, absolutely. Essex is a, probably a half a billion of equity there overall throughout all the project. And I think one of the unique things is that it's hard to do 50% affordable without government subsidy. But because it was in Manhattan and, and that location, we were actually able to adjust the land basis with the city to a point where it was economically feasible. So yes, we had tax abatements, which helped obviously, but normally at a market rate value for the land, you couldn't do 50% affordable. So I think that's a a unique thing about Essex and and about Manhattan. If you move to the boroughs, that's a little bit harder to do. But, you know, there was really little government support and created over 500 units of affordable housing there. Uh, That's amazing. And that's where I think the win is. I mean, you have now 500 families who live in affordable housing in a great location in Manhattan. You as a developer and your partners and your capital partners. So the opportunity to invest and take the risk, a very long-term risk in developing this, it's not an easy risk to do. And the city benefited from that as well, politically even by developing or retaining another 500 units. That's incredible. So the incentives were aligned there. Let's jump into the one thing that you did in Ridge Hill that's a 74 acre 1.2 million square foot mixed use I believe in Yonkers tell us what's so attractive about that investment if you want to talk about Westchester in general you know it's it's outside of the city what attracted you there and what do you see as an opportunity uh, you did that I think recently like a year ago yeah we closed about a year ago we're definitely better known for investing in the city But we have done a few things outside of uh, New York recently. We actually bought a 300,000 square foot industrial building in Northern Jersey as well around the same time. But yeah, we closed Ridge Hill a little over a year ago. I live in Westchester. I've shopped at Ridge Hill and it always kind of felt like something could be a little bit better or there was something a little bit lacking. And during the pandemic, it really got hit kind of hard. The owner at the time struggled to make deals to keep some of the tenants. So vacancy shot up a bit. 
but it retained great anchor tenants like Whole Foods and Apple and Dick's Sporting Goods and a whole bunch of credit retailers. So like, again, the bones were there, but it was just sort of lacking something. So when we saw that opportunity and the scale, we like scale and it's harder to get the dollar scale once you leave the city, but it was there. Yeah, it's over a million feet of retail. There's entitlements for 500 units of housing that will be done at a later stage. There's entitlements for a hotel. We'll see if that happens at some point in the future as well. But we liked what was there and felt like it could be improved upon. It needed programming. It needed to draw people there that weren't coming there other than to just run to one errand or go to Whole Foods. You need something to keep you there. You need a different food and beverage offering that once you pick up your kid from the Legoland, birthday party that, hey, let's stick around and have dinner. And it really needed a reimagined core. There is an area in the middle of the center where Lord and Taylor used to be, and there's a bunch of vacancy around there. So we're in the midst of a master plan to sort of re-envision that and reinvigorate that part of the center as well. That's great. So so really, uh, that's the scale and, and maybe also the fact that the town wants to motivate capable, able developers to come in and reimagine, like you said, that specific 1.2 million square feet plus maybe develop housing and maybe develop hotel eventually. Is it fair to say that the town there is somewhat motivated to help out? Yeah, no, Yonkers has been great. They're very pro-business and they want to see Ridge Hill succeed. I think Westchester is generally very underserved by retail. And the center sits, you know, the intersection of some of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. So the potential to really make it into something greater is there. And the support of the city of Yonkers is, is certainly helpful. Listen, that's super impressive. I mean, again, it's just finishing up on the retail side. That's, that's super impressive on how you guys think. You're focused on New York City, but hey, you, you're a step outside and, and you're finding a new world and you're jumping on it. That's great to see. And on the multifamily side, you're going where you're incentivized to go. And on the office side, finding the right categories to invest in and reinvent yourselves uh, even before we've seen the office market being challenged. So fantastic to listen to this and learn from it. So thank you so much, Chris. And we appreciate you being here. Any closing words about New York City and where you think we're going to be in a year or so? Well, I wish I knew where we were going to be in a year. But, you know, our thesis on New York City for the last 25 years is that the talent wants to be here. And if the talent wants to be in New York, New York will figure it out. It will reinvent itself. There's lots of smart people here that will figure out what those offices should be turned into or what the next big technology or thing is that's going to drive New York City. So I think as long as people keep betting on New York, New York will be fine and we'll see where we go. But thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. And yep, the demand for New York City is amazing and we look forward to seeing some more of it. And thank you, Chris. And thank you everybody for listening and we look forward to seeing everybody soon. 